You're listening to Gravy. Gravy. Gravy? Gravy. Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. If I asked you to picture an American farmer, what image floats to mind? A red flannel shirt and mesh back feed cap, mud-stained overalls and well-creased brogans? The person you're picturing might be white. More than nine out of 10 American farmers today are white. Historically, of course, black farmers played a signal role in American agriculture, especially in the South. Black labor, knowledge, and experience built this region's economy. Heck, black labor, knowledge, and experience built this nation's economy. Much of that knowledge was shared that labor was done while African Americans were held in bondage for hundreds of years, followed by a century of sharecropping and tenant farming. Remarkably, though, a century ago, African American families owned one-seventh of our nation's farmland. Over the last hundred years, black people have lost their farmland at a much higher rate, a much faster rate than whites. Sure, farming changed. Mechanization transformed agriculture. But let's be clear. Many African Americans were cheated out of their farms, cheated out of their lands. And now just 1% of farm families are African American. Gravy has explored the challenges faced by black farmers in previous episodes, including Fighting for the Promised Land, a story of farming and racism, produced by Tina Antolini and focused on Shirley Sherrod of Albany, Georgia. This time out, we visit the farm of Eddie and Dorothy Wise, an African-American couple in North Carolina. John Buin, host of the Scene on Radio podcast, spent months recording at their small hog farm to produce this sound portrait of the Wise family at work. One quick caution. Midway through the episode, you'll hear a description of hogs being taken to slaughter and language describing that slaughter. Chapter 1. Meet the Wises. Their farm is 106 acres on rolling land near Rocky Mount, North Carolina. The driveway bends around a grove of trees, leading to the mobile home where Eddie and Dorothy live. My granddaddy was a sharecropper, so I'm fourth generation farmer. I'm the, out of his 125 grandchildren, I'm the only farmer in the crowd. I've never wanted to leave farm. But Eddie Wise did leave the farm after watching his grandfather and his father raise cotton, tobacco, and hogs for white landowners. When I turned 18, I signed up to go in the Army. I was out there working in the tobacco field, and the guy came looking for me two days in a row, and I raised both hands and said, here I come. (laughs) I said, the next time I'm on a farm, I'm going to be owning that bad boy. I'm not working on a farm for nobody else. Almost three decades later, after a career as an Army Green Beret, Eddie finally returned to North Carolina to pursue his dream, to become the first in his family to own a farm. Almost no one buys a farm without a major loan. But as class action lawsuits have shown, government officials systematically discriminated against black farmers for many decades. The local officials who administered farm loans for what used to be called the Farmers Home Administration, or FHA, routinely gave loans to white farmers and said no to equally qualified black farmers. The good of that 
had an unwritten system. If you walked in the FHA and you were black, the first thing they did was close the books. And they said no to anything that you asked from that point on. They said it didn't have applications. If you got the application, they wouldn't tell you how to fill it out. And then when you finally got it filled out and turned it into them, they would tell you what was wrong. You don't have enough experience. You don't have good credit. And then they hit you, oops, we're out of money. The average black person, when you approach that way on two or three times, you don't bother anymore. But we kept fighting. We found a farm in 1991. And it took us five years to get it. We prevailed. I told my wife, I said, when God is blessing you, man can't stop you. I'm Dorothy Joannette Monroe Wise. My wife Dorothy and I have a 106 acres farm here in Whitaker's, North Carolina. Most of my friends call me Joan. I'm 65. I'm 66. This is, to me, this is home. I was born and raised 40 miles from here, Williamston, North Carolina. I'm from Washington, D.C. It's rolling hills, 30 miles from the Virginia line. You're 40 miles from Raleigh. We're standing in the middle, almost in the middle of my garden. I have a three-acre garden here. And north of the garden is the hog houses and my building. Uh, Northwest is the house and the lake. And then to the south of me, we have clusters of trees that were planted and are growing and all that stuff. And then you have my neighbor's uh, pasture with all his cows in it, due south of us. It's a usual day for us. I'm in the house reading and uh, Eddie is feeding the pigs. I've been raising hogs ever since 1975. My whole military career, when I was a sent somewhere, I was raising hogs. And right now, I have 250 head of hogs. I'm pushing the feed cart to the first building where I have my sows and young hogs and my bulls, my male hogs, breeders, and all that. It's a fiberglass cart with four wheels on it. Two of them are big. It's designed to be pushed on concrete, but I have to push it on grass till I get to the concrete. <laughs> you, you don't hear a sound right now, right? Hogs pay attention to sounds. And they heard the wheels squeaking on that cart, right? So they know that's the feed cart. My operation is from fire to finish. I have a gestation house, a bull house, a farrowing house, nursery, and a topping house. So I can take him from the time he's conceived until he's ready to be consumed at the slaughter at market. Five and a half to six months. Once in a blue moon, I'll eat some pork, but not that much. Maybe, you know, just a little of it, but I'm not a pork eater. But since I loved the, the farm, anything that had to go with it, I didn't mind doing it. Yeah, I go up there and watch them feed and everything, and when a lot of them 
be running after him to get feed. I'll go in, where are you supposed to be? And they run right over there where they're supposed to be. <laughs> I met my wife in 1988. I was working at Howard University in Washington, D.C. She was a grant manager for the College of Medicine. The Army sent me to Howard University to teach. I was teaching the military science department. Air mobile operations, repelling, jumping, air assaults. The year that I met him, she said, the Spirit of the Lord told me that the man that come in my life would bring everything. She said, I've wanted a farm all my life. So I told her, I said, you're kidding me. He told me he was going to a farm. I was standing in the hallway at Howard University College of Medicine. I said, don't let this three-piece suit fool you. I'm on my way home to North Carolina to find a farm right now. I said, I'm going to Wilson, North Carolina to pick bluebirds this weekend. So I said, okay. She said, let me get my hat. So I got my hat put it on, and we drove down there and picked bluebirds all day long. But he was surprised about that because I'm a city girl. He didn't think that I would have anything to do with the farm. But all that stuff was given to me when I was five years old. My father had me cooking all the meals at five. So I love to see people enjoy food. I said, I'm going to own a farm, and all the food, I'm going to grow it, and people are going to learn to eat and enjoy food. She used to drive from Washington, D.C., all the way to Durham every Sunday for church and just to look at the scenery between Virginia and North Carolina. So in her heart, she's always wanted to be on the farm. Now, she's a happy camper now. You can't, she don't worry about a thing. And, I mean, it's been a roll ever since this. And we've been married, what, 16 years now? Okay, this is the gestation house. It's 100 feet long by 34 feet wide. A sow's on one end. And I have 12 pigs to the pen, growing pigs. And I got roughly 130 in here. See how quiet they got? Because <laughs> everybody's eating. <laughs> That's why you watch the floor there. Once that feed hits the floor, they get quiet. Each scoop weighs six and a half pounds. Each pig gets seven pounds of feed. I have white pigs with brown spots, white pigs with black spots, black pigs with white spots, solid black pigs, solid red pigs, and solid white pigs. So I have like the Rainbow Coalition here. When you see that pig that's red, sandy red, that's the Duroc in them. If they're more white than anything else, that's the Yorkshire in them. If he's more black than anything else, that's the Berkshire. If he's spotted, that's the spotted Poland Chinese. Look, you guys. All right, bro. It's all over. That's a done deal. Chapter 2. Part of any livestock farmer's job is to breed and nurture animals. The Wises have also raised several children, now grown and gone, 
As a former army officer, Eddie isn't shy about imposing discipline on a stubborn hog or on the young farmhands who sometimes work for him. But in their relationships with their animals and their land, and especially with each other, the wises show a good deal of tenderness, too. This is uh, the bull house. He's the herd bull. He's the ma- primary bull used for breeding. He is solid black. He's a Berkshire. He weighs right about 500 pounds. He is six and a half feet long, 18 inches wide, and three feet tall. Now the big boys, they do artificial insemination. You gotta have a lab and all this stuff to do AI. I've been trained, I have all the equipment. I can do it, but I don't. I like doing the old fashioned way. Sows come in heat, and they stay in heat for five days. During that five day period, by the, between the second, third, and fourth day is when you want to breed him. So you put him in there, and he breathes them. Come on, let me see you. Come on, walk for me. Come on. She's tall, she got the ham on her. You look at the height, you look at the hams, you look at the structure, and that's what you want to put back into your herd. Square built, and that's what you want him. You don't want him narrow at the back and wide at the front. If she's narrow at the back, that means that when it comes time for that pig, she have trouble having a pig. If she's square at the back, when she have a pig, she's gonna be wide. They come right out. It's not a problem. And that guy over there is ready. You can look at him. See, he's square built. Built like a boxcar, he's square. And he knows that the minute I let a hog in here with him, it's breeding time. He don't ask no questions, he go to work. He says, it's showtime. <laughs> and the end result is you look down through these pins, you see he's been performing. When them little dudes pop out, hey, it's just like DNA. There he is. <laughs> yeah, it's a daddy. <laughs> Eddie! Eddie! Oh! Yes. Where are you? Here in the burning house. Yes, ma'am. Came to see the babies? No, I ain't come to see no babies. I've had my babies in the cinema. These babies are a little bit different, baby. Yeah. I just started feeding them today. They're eating now. My first name is Dorothy. Nobody ever called me by my first name. They always called me Joan. I enjoy the farm and whatever has to be done, I do it. As I worked with him, I would go up there and watch him feed the pigs. And when they were being born, my hands were small enough to reach in and pull them. And that's what I was doing because his was too big and he couldn't do that. These guys are nine days old and these guys are seven days old. She had 10 and she had 12. They were born at about a pound, pound and a half, two pounds. They're weighing three and a half to four pounds right now. And they're starting to eat for the first time. They've been nursing their mama all along. Out of 24 pigs, we had one run that just took off the solid white like the mama. She's about a pound. <laughs> and she do holler. What's going on, little runt? And a runt 
is a baby pig that won't grow but won't die. Some uh, operations, they just kill them. Me, I always feed them and separate them, and eventually they'll get to the size. But it's going to take twice the time. And then go ahead and turn them into a barbecue. Now, last but not least, we feed the muskins, the dogs. Yep. That's right. Grew up time. They're across between St. Menard and Labs. Runt was the smallest one. That's the solid brown one. Jed is the male. Spot is his sister. They're, they're sisters and brothers. That is. Come on, Jed. Come on, Runt. Yes, dear. Be wise. Well, I think the most wise thing that I did was seeing this foxy lady walking down the hallway at Howard University and got to know her. And later on, made her my wife. And I told her, uh, she asked me, how did I know she was the one? Because I prayed to the Lord for her, right? I said, I know you the one. Because I've been loving big leg girls all my life. You got little legs. She said, no man never asked me for no legs. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's just been a fun thing with us, you know. But uh, life to me can be very enjoyable if you have somebody with you that you constantly can communicate with and you enjoy them and they enjoy you. And you will help them no matter what you have to do. Up next, the Wise family take their pigs for a ride. But first... In 2009, Ron Marks purchased yogurt-making equipment, sourced grass-fed milk from local farmers, and made his first batch of Greek yogurt. Atlanta Fresh Artisan Creamery was born, and the company expanded with assistance from a Whole Foods Market local producer's grant. Atlanta Fresh has been committed to quality ingredients from the beginning. The milk that comes from our farm comes from cows that have been fed nothing but non-GMO forages and grasses. Using our state-of-the-art dairy parlour, not only can our consumers know which farm their milk comes from, we can tell them which animal. Freshness is quality, and part of that is knowing that we are getting the milk into the creamery literally hours out of the cow, and when people taste our yogurt and milk, they say, I've never tasted a product like this before. When you next visit a Whole Foods, look for the Atlanta Fresh Greek yogurt and milk in a variety of flavors. Your purchase in the Whole Foods Local Producer Program supports quality food from homegrown businesses, just as Whole Foods supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. And now let's step back into the barnyard with John Buin and the Wises. Chapter 3, The Harvest. With a total herd of 250 hogs, the Wises are small operators. They also raise lighter, leaner hogs than most big producers, which they market as all-natural, free of vaccines and growth hormones. Every couple of weeks, Eddie selects a half-dozen or so hogs from his pens and maneuvers them into his open-air trailer. 
Pulling the trailer with his white Ford pickup, he drives 45 miles to a small, black-owned processing plant in Robersonville, North Carolina. It's a cold, sunny day. It's a pretty day, though. Hey, Master Hush. We are about to take a load of hogs to a slaughter. Once they're slaughtered, they'll be processed into pork chop sausage, ribs, neck bone, pigtails, pig ears, all the goodies, all the above. So let's go see what we can snatch out of here. This is a thing you use to move the hog with. It looks like a boat paddle with beads on the center, on the inside of it. So when you rattle it, it makes the sound of a rattlesnake. And naturally, hogs are afraid of snakes. So they go the opposite direction. And so you can drive them where you want them to go. I'm looking for them. Something that weighs about 170 pounds. He's a prime candidate. Oh, hey. So now the fun begins. What we just did was uh, we had two pins and we needed four hogs out of 12. So what we did was separate out the ones we needed and then pinned them all in one pin. So the next time we moved them, they'd be going down the alleyway, into the other building and into the trailer. Back it up to, to uh, house number two, right up to the door. And the trailer is about three inches up from the actual floor. So it's not a problem. Once you get them down this alley, but they run right in the trailer before they know what hit them. They're in it. <laughs> and you lock them in. When I look at a pig, I see potential dollars. When I smell pig poop, that's money. Because without the pig, there would be no poop. So if you got pig poop, that means you got some pigs, that means you're gonna make some money. You don't establish an attachment, first of all, because you have so many. It's a business. My income right now is between the wife and I, $55,000 a year, non-farm income. I spent 27 years in the Army as a Green Beret. I'm retired from the Army, and I'm drawing Social Security. The wife has retired from Howard, and she draws Social Security. And a $55,000 a year non-farm income help us stay on the farm, because <laughs> we're pulling down roughly about $15,000, $16,000 a year on the farm. You can't run a hog operation like that. It's tight, but it's gonna get better. Okay, we're uh, at the 
slaughterhouse at the unloading ramp. We're on the edge of town. He has a railhead right here next door. And the buildings are center block white, but that's that's normal color for your processing slaughter facilities. They use all white. The pins in there are concrete floors with covers and they have uh, winter shields up right now to keep the hogs from getting cold and sick before they get slaughtered. The way they got it designed at the plant, they go in the kill chute and then make him turn around like he's going back out. Then they have a panel to block him in. Just pop him between the eyes. Drag him out on the kill floor. He kicks to cut his throat, string him up, and work his way to the vet. Which starts to remove the hair. Then it goes up, they have a, what is called a beater belt that flips the whole hog. And it flips most of the hair off of him. And then he comes out on the table and they scrape him or uh, well they use a um, torch to remove any of the fine hair off of him. Then he's strung up and goes to the next station where they gut him. The inspector inspects him at that station. And from that point, he goes to the cooler. And it takes 24 hours cooling before you can process him. After 24 hours, he gets cut up to pork chops and sausages. We're in the processing room at the slaughter facility and they're deboning the pig to make sausage. The process that we're doing right now, like I said, these are the hogs that were slaughtered yesterday. Uh, we're processing these today. Danny Peed, P-E-E-D, Robertsonville packing. I own the place. I I'll put my hands in some of all of it. You know, whatever it takes, that I'll do. They're deboning the hams, the head, the uh, shoulders, and the big machine you see over there Turn that bad boy into sausage. Those chunks. The best there is. The best sausage there is. Chapter 4 Succession. Unlike many white farm families, the Wises did not inherit their farm. They bought it in the 1990s after a struggle against a government loan officer who they believed was racist and seemed to do all he could to stop them. They became the first in their families to own a farm. As one of the few remaining black farm families in America, the Wises hoped to pass their farm on to their children against the odds. My grandfather would be proud as hell from the standpoint that he was a sharecropper. Everybody else, to include my uncles, they couldn't wait to get off the farm. We're never coming back. You know? I ain't never wanted to leave the farm. You know, my heart has always been in the farm. But we must change, and we must work together to preserve what we gonna call our preferred future. Thank you. We are at the sixth annual Black Land Loss Summit and Conference. And the location is the Hilton in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. The North Carolina Minority Farmers Association meets basically here every year. And uh, Eddie and I come every year and 
we meet new people, but the old ones come on, and we have a lot of fun together. We had 90% of the black farmers in North Carolina that are actually farming present. I brought 350 flyers from each of my stores, and we ran out of flyers. So I know it was at least 350 people here. <laughs> Moving right along, uh, if you need some good hogs, I have some. Uh, <laughs> this conference combines socializing, uh, sharing ideas, a lot of detailed information on what can be done to help us survive on the farm. Um, so my name is Jamie Davey. I'm an attorney at the Land Loss Prevention Project in Durham. That's part of why you're here, is trying to figure out how to make sure that what you've already gotten from the previous generation or you've worked really hard to purchase for yourself, you can find ways to keep that, that wealth in the family because land is wealth. Um, and sometimes we don't think Our plan is something happens to myself or something happens to Eddie, my son and his son will equally get whatever we have. It's theirs with no problem. As you look at black farmers, when their kids grow up and move off the farm, they don't come back, want to come back because daddy has such a hard struggle. My name is Carl Vaughn. I'm the farm loan manager to service Martin, Wayne, Green, and Pitt County, and Mr. Wise is one of the uh, customers I serve from Nash County. I am a second generation farmer, my father farmed, but when I retire, I'm going back to the farm. And in order for a young black man to go back to the farm, or a middle-aged black man to go back, he has to grow up on the farm, he has to really see the struggles and understand what's going on, and a lot of young people do not get that opportunity to do that. I think for next year's uh, session, we need to target what our young kids can do to get into 4-H. There's a link with 4-H that we, as black people, have not been advised that we need to be doing with our kids. If you're a hog farmer and you got a neighbor that's got young kids, get them participating, for instance, just to show a hog for a year. He grows the hog and show him. This lays the foundation for him as a farmer. We have to instill in our young people today that farming is a business and they need to understand the value of the farm land. If they don't understand that, it's just a way of quick money for them to do other things and not a way of life, then we won't have any black farmer left in 20 years. Because all the old heads of the smart farm is going to be gone. We're in the backyard, in the trees between the lake and the house, close to the picnic table where the dogs are stretched out, relaxing in the sun, sunning. <laughs> Raking up some pine straw to put around my lilies. I have candle lilies, and they won't winter over unless you wrap them up and protect them. And this will protect them to the spring. I don't do the five miles with the rucksack every day, but I, you know, I'm handling 100 pound bags of corn. 
And as you notice, I handle a few hundred pound pigs and <laughs> 50 pound pigs, moving them from pen to pen. So I get in a lot of exercise. So I'm in pretty good condition. I don't think I'm too bad for a 65 year old character running a farm full time. This episode was adapted from the public radio series Five Farms, executive produced by Wesley Horner. This gravy portrait of Eddie and Dorothy Wise and their farm in Nash County, North Carolina, was produced by John Buin of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. John made those recordings in 2008 and 2009. That was a happy time for the Wises. Things took a turn for the worse, though, over the last few years. In early 2016, the U.S. Department of Agriculture foreclosed on their loan and evicted them from their farm. The Wises accused the USDA of racial discrimination. John Buin tells that story in an investigative documentary called Losing Ground, which you can listen to via the Scene on Radio podcast. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio a podcast from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, which John hosts and produces. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. Our intern is Robin Miniter. For photos of this episode, head to our website at southernfoodways.org. Also on our website, you'll find a link to that episode I mentioned at the top, Fighting for the Promised Land, a story of farming and racism, focused on Shirley Sherrod of Albany, Georgia. Two more things to know before you go. The SFA runs on donations from listeners like you. Truly, we couldn't do this without your dollars. Click the Make a Donation tab at southernfoodways.org. And as you go about your day, please remember, Make cornbread, not warm.